Hi, I'm Eric Tischler from Apt Associates. Data from 2019 to 2021 show the number of elderly people with chronic patterns of homelessness increased by an astonishing 73%. While that portion of the overall unhoused population was relatively small, the trend obviously is alarming. But here in Washington, D.C., Miriam's Kitchen, a nonprofit organization working to end chronic homelessness in D.C., through outreach and connections to services, housing, and advocacy, finds 60% of their housing outreach and support clients are over 55. Given the organization's robust experience with this growing population, we thought we'd sit down and talk about how we can best serve and support elderly people who are experiencing or emerging from homelessness. From APT, I'm joined by my colleague, Brooke Abrams. Brooke is a trained political scientist and health equity expert whose research and technical assistance has, among other things, helped deliver culturally relevant housing services and improve housing stability outcomes for BIPOC communities nationwide. From Miriam's Kitchen, we're joined by April Vanny and Adam Rocap. April is a senior permanent supporting housing case manager with lived experiences of homelessness. Her passion is serving others by meeting them where they are in life and helping them to reach goals beyond their own expectations. Adam is the deputy director at Miriam's Kitchen. He also is active in D.C.'s Interagency Council on Homelessness, particularly in efforts to end veteran and chronic homelessness. Thank you all for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So glad to be here. Brooke, I just provided a single data point on the trends we're seeing nationally. Can you provide a little more context? And then, Adam, we'd love to hear more about what you're seeing at Miriam's Kitchen. Absolutely. So there's just been a lot of work from our annual homelessness uh, assessment report. Based off of the report, we are seeing that nearly 10,000 more people aged 65 and older are experiencing sheltered homelessness. In addition to that, the number of people considered nearly elderly who had chronic patterns of homelessness has also increased. What this means is folks in our aged population are experiencing homelessness for the first time, and we're also seeing increases in folks that are aging into chronic homelessness. I think another thing that's important to name is there's an estimated 2.5 million elderly people that are close to homelessness or on the brink of homelessness. And we're also seeing national trends of older adult renters, um, which means there's gonna be decreases in wealth among this population. We're gonna see more cost burdened households. So one of the questions that I try to keep top of mind is where do folks cut back, right? What part of their livelihoods uh, might this population be forced to negotiate. Um, I think nationally, there have been a few studies that are exploring the ways where we can anticipate the future of the aging homeless population um, and how it impacts health and shelter systems. Well, thank you. So Adam, you know, what are you seeing? Because uh, this population makes up a much more significant portion of Miriam's Kitchen's clientele. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess first, just a little background about Miriam's Kitchen. Um, I think, like you mentioned, we're a nonprofit that's based in Washington, D.C., and our mission is to end chronic homelessness. And we do that through a mix of direct service programs as well as local advocacy work. So just looking at our direct programs, we have three main programs where we're serving and working with people experiencing homelessness. So we have a dining room and a case management team that sees people every day. Um, as they come for meals and we help connect people to housing, healthcare, other income supports. We have a similar street outreach team who's working with people who are currently homeless, 
And that group is going you know, outside of our building, outside of our dining room to wherever people are staying on the street. And then we also work with about 300 people who are formerly homeless, were homeless for many years, but are now in housing and we're offering the support services um, for them in housing. So on some of the aging trends, we're seeing things a little bit differently in each of those program um, clusters. I'll start first. I think we, we're seeing the most of the trends in aging in our housing program. So of those, you know, a little over 300 people that we serve in the PSH program, you know, over 60% of our clients are 55 and older, and then over almost 22% are 65 and older. Kind of from people who are currently homeless right now, um, in our dining room in DC, the, where the percentages are a little bit lower. So like in our dining room, we see, you know, over 60% or at least 45 and older and 15% are 65 and plus. Or if you look DC wide, um, 35% of individuals are 55 and older and about 10% are 65 and older. So we're really seeing both of those things that Brooke mentioned, both people that we've known for many years who have gotten older as they've been homeless for a long time. And we're seeing some of you know what we're seeing in the national trends data about seniors that are becoming homeless for the first time. Great, thank you. And you know, April, why don't we start with you for this next one? You know, what are you seeing um, that's driving these trends? I mean, you tell us a little bit more about what your role is and how you're helping with services. You know, but what what factors are making seniors you know particularly vulnerable to homelessness? Um, and what are how challenges to helping them maintain their homes once they're rehoused? So I work as a senior case manager for uh, Miriam's Kitchen in our uh, permanent supportive housing department. And um, we serve a, a, a quite a few um, clients. Um, a lot of them are over the age of 65. And um, some of the challenges that we see is, you know, the health declining. Some are dealing with untreated mental health um, challenges or uh, substance use. Um, and once they're housed, is um, the child. Those are the challenges, you know, getting them connected to healthcare services, um, homemades if they need it, um, medication that they need, helping them get their medication and managing their medication. I mean, it's, it's a variety of things that we see with our clients, especially our senior clients. A lot of them um, are at the first stages of dementia. So, you know, we have to make sure they're connected with the proper services and have families that are involved um, and connected with them and that they're giving them the support that they need as well. Thank you. So, Adam, you know, how about you? So, what, you know, what are you seeing you know, or what might you add that's leading to the higher rates? Yeah, I mean, when I think about, you know, why are we seeing more older adults um, who are either currently homeless or um, the older adults that we're serving who are now in housing, I mean, it's really these, like, two different causes that are driving things. So one, we know from a lot of research that there's something about the group that was in the latter half of the baby boom that was born from 1955 to 1965 um, that they're disproportionately at, at risk of experiencing homelessness. So I've been working at Miriam's Kitchen um, for about 17 years. So, you know, when I first started and I was working in direct services here, that that sort of group of people was in their 40s on average. But now that same cohort of people that was born in the 
you know, late 1950s, early 1960s is now in their late 50s and their late 60s. So whether, you know, we're seeing that sort of same age group that's in our dining room that's been homeless for a long time, or like the, a lot of the clients that April served when we've been successful on a city level, helping people move into housing, that, that group is still, you know, the, the most numerous group that we've helped move into housing and they're older now. But then when I think about the things that like drive, you know, seniors now to become homeless for the first time or homeless again, I mean, it's, it's really the same causes when we think about why to be anyone become homeless in the first place. So it's, you know, fundamentally economic factors, you know, when housing costs, you know, in uh, that are rising across the country in urban areas like DC are getting higher than anyone who is very low income is at risk of losing their housing. And then when you layer on sort of the vulnerabilities and risks that come with aging, whether that's, you know, less ability to work, you can't bring in as much income. So now those high housing costs are even farther out of the way. Or, you know, the way that, you know, health problems, health challenges, those sorts of things, you know, are often the the thing that pushes someone into homelessness. I mean, that's that's things that are showing up more and more as people are becoming older. So it's not surprising that as, you know, housing costs are really high and now there's an even larger group of people who are older that we're seeing a spike from that group. Gotcha. And Brooke, how about you? You know, what what are we thinking about as we're looking at these trends? Just in addition to what Adam and um, April are, are lifting up, one of the other things that I'd like to emphasize is when we're thinking about the overlapping of other systems, I'm even thinking about um, our mass incarceration policies, uh, the justice system, right? We know that within our um, justice system, we have things, especially within probation, for example, probation and supervision fees, fines, testing, things like that. Um, For many aging and senior folks that are just being released from prison, for example, um, they can be very cost burdened and um, the experiences uh, that occur while being impacted by the justice system often significantly worsen uh, mental and physical health conditions too, right? So that can also lead to things like a, like a lack of social safety nets, um, also the ability to, you know, afford housing, of course. We also see things like employment barriers uh, to starting and sustaining um, a job for those most impacted, Um, And then maybe even things like upon return to their community, there's feelings of a sense of community erasure um, within that urban revitalization sort of context. And this might have occurred while, you know, they may have been incarcerated, for example. So just that sense of like place belonging and a home to return back to that can all be eradicated because of an interlocking system with housing and homelessness as well. And then I think the other thing that I'd like to add to this is because we're talking a lot about what impacts maybe likelihood or things that exacerbate the likelihood of becoming homeless. And I think I'm also thinking about that in that inverse relationship to like how can homelessness exacerbate 
some of the existing things that our age population are already continuing, right? So things like cognitive decline, mobility, um, access to social networks, right? As we age, we understand also that our costs increase as well. But homelessness adds an additional um, barrier in a different um, an additional barrier and an additional um, issue that really makes this a lot more complex, right? It speeds up cognitive decline. It speeds up our physical immobility um, as folks are aging, right? And that's if we want to manage well-being as we're aging. We don't want to just manage well-being, right? Rather, the goal is sustaining a high quality of life where folks that are aging can actually thrive. So that's another thing I've been thinking about as well. But that kind of maybe leads into the next question, you know, which is, you know, what are the implications and additional complications for this population? Um, um, in a- April, you want to, you want to start? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like I said, it's, it's definitely the, you know, people are um, experiencing early stages of dementia. Um, they may be dealing with mental health issues or um, challenges that's not treated. Um, also, you know, their health conditions may be declining. Um, but I mean, we see a lot of clients who, you know, more so do not want to address the mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, even admit to it that they have one to mm-hmm. say that, hey, I have an issue and I need some help. We see that a lot. And, and, and part of our work is to just work with them to, you know, try to connect them with people who are understanding that, hey, they have not, you know, um, they have not acknowledged that there, there is some trouble there, but we know that there is and try to help them to see, you know, a little help won't won't hurt. Um, it can definitely help you, especially in maintaining your housing. Another thing is, you know, when we don't have the families to support um, people, that that just adds an extra layer of um, stress, feeling, you know, rejected or, you know, different types of feelings that they they may have as far as not having that family support and love and they rely on you know, having a case manager around. Some of them, you know, you could call them and they'll talk to you for hours just because they have somebody there, you know, to talk to them and it's not their family. Um, A lot of people um, with the rising causes of things, people have struggled with getting food. So, you know, the food insecurities is a a big issue um, with our our clients. So we make sure that they do have some food um, as well as resources to get food. Right. Thank you. How about, and how about you, Adam? You know, what are some of the additional, I mean, that we're able to describe is pretty extensive, right? In terms of another layer of services that needs to be provided, but what else are you seeing? I think in our programs, especially the housing program, you know, we're seeing firsthand what the medical research on people experiencing homelessness um, has been telling us for a while is that, especially for groups who've been, people have been homeless for many years, that group is experiencing the types of health problems or health conditions of someone who's 15 to 20 years older than a housed counterpart of theirs. So if, you know, in our housing program, if over 60% of our group are 55 and older and 25% are 65 and older, 
you know, the bulk of our clients are often experiencing the same aging and health issues of people who are 75 to 85. So on some level, as the whole U.S. is wrestling with the baby boomers getting older and these trends towards aging and the solutions that needs to um, be in place to manage that um, and give people the support and the care that they need, we're seeing that much earlier in our work with with housed individuals who used to be homeless. And it's from everything. So, I mean, there's parts of the what's needed, which is integrating and embedding aging services and um, healthcare directly in like homeless specific housing. So for instance, like in programs like ours, you know, even if people are renting through a voucher and are throughout the city, how are we partnering with medical services or other aging services to make sure that that's embedded in a, you know, permanent supportive housing that's within the homeless services system. There's home health aids that Medicaid will pay for that are available to everyone, but all the structural and like system barriers that are there, like not enough home health aids, you know, how do you, how hard, arduous it is to get that set up, all the things that we need to do in a mainstream level to help people age in place, you know, those barriers are there as much or more for a lot of the people that we serve who've for, have experienced homelessness in the past. Uh, thanks, Adam. Uh, Brooke, how does that align with what we're seeing nationally? Nationally, adults 50 and older who are homeless have a mortality rate four times higher than the general population, right? So in terms of implications, these folks are disproportionately less likely to be able to prepare for end-of-life planning. Also, it's much more difficult to seek preventative care. So when we talk about um, burden on our healthcare systems, right? Burden on overlapping and interconnected uh, systems. I think that that's something to continue to think about as an implication. The last thing I'll name up is there is significant diversity in needs, in supports, in subgroup experiences among our aging population. What that means in terms of implication is that we're going to have to get innovative uh, with our solutions, our interventions, um, and talk to different people so that we don't overgeneralize, um, right? I know that sounds very costly when we start thinking about programs and how policies can talk to um, each other and how policymakers can talk to each other. But I think uh, the implication is that that will lead to maybe more coordination collaboration, building partnerships, right, with those most impacted, and being able to speak to what Adam said, how can we begin to bridge together supports, funding, things like that, to speak to the diverse experiences of our aging homelessness population. Do we want to talk a little bit about, you know, just sort of what gets you to this position, which is, you know, employment. Um, we've talked about dementia, we've talked about justice system involvement, you know, what does this mean in terms of you know, what kind of jobs are available uh, that, are, that aren't that are too taxing, that provide a living wage, that enable you to afford housing, that have health benefits? I mean, in a lot of ways, I think it does speak to, you know, why older adults are at, you know, higher risk for becoming homeless for the first time or another time, um, more so than they used to be. And again, it, it, at one point, Social Security plus, you know, some money that you were able to save up could help you, you know, pay for the, you know, relatively much cheaper housing costs. 
of the past, but now, especially in urban areas and other places that are really high rent um, areas, it's not surprising that now someone who's an older adult, who's either not working anymore or working part-time, um, like you said, Eric, has less access to some of the healthcare and the preventative healthcare. It's not surprising that unless we keep investing in the social safety net and do things around addressing the housing costs, that that group of people um, many times won't have the family to support them or won't be able to you know, draw on the right resources to help get through a, a, a crisis. And what we know for anyone, whether you're an older adult or a younger adult or middle-aged, the, you know, when you first become homeless, the longer you stay homeless, you know, the more some of the, like this, the trauma and the impact of homelessness itself makes it harder and harder to get out. So it's why we really need to be focused on not only helping everyone who's homeless right now get into housing and get the supports that they need, but that we're really looking big picture about how to prevent people from becoming homeless in the first place. Thank you. Well, that's a great pivot to my next question, which is, you know, what what can we do to help turn the tide uh, for more people in, in these different scenarios that you just outlined, Adam, you know, um, you know, either whether they're older um, and newly unhoused or they're chronically unhoused and you, you, and I think it's great. Let's go back and talk about how do we prevent people from being in this position in the first place. But, you know, you want to maybe start with you, Adam, what are some approaches that, that we know work approaches we should be trying out? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think of it in a couple buckets and maybe we can work backwards. So for older adults or anyone who's experiencing homelessness right now, on some level, the solution is quite simple, is how do we connect people as quickly as we can to a type of housing that is the level of support that they need, both financially and any services that, that are connected to it. So for many people, especially people that are homeless for a while and who are older, they're really gonna need something that looks like permanent supportive housing which is one of the more expensive housing interventions because it involves sort of helping people with a lot of rental help for a long time and embeds support services that April and her team provide that are really important. We know how to do that. We know it works. It's just about both having the public and private will to say, yes, we want to solve this problem and we want to invest the money in figuring out how to scale that up. That as you as you go more upstream, there's there's more programs that are emerging that we know how to work where it is like a prevention program. So someone who either is at risk for an, an eviction or who, you know, we know has a previous history of homelessness. And there's often some, you know, not that large investments in in helping people pay for groceries or helping people stay who are staying with friends um, and family, help figure out a small amount of money or you know, mediation that might help that work. Um, all those sorts of things can help people from becoming homeless and getting stuck in homelessness for a long time. In some ways, since we know, especially for older adults, that being in housing, people's, you know, use of hospitals tends to go down, the length of time that they're in hospitals go down, like their, you know, healthcare costs, you know, over the years are less than if they were homeless. There's actually just a wise choice to be made for us as you know, communities to say, hey, wouldn't we rather spend that money 
on helping people being housing and preventing a lot of these health problems, then you know this money that we're going to have to spend later in healthcare costs, not to mention sort of the human suffering that's involved in the additional health problems and being homeless. Right. Thank you. Uh, Brooke, that sounds like stuff that the app looks into. But before I pivot to you, I want to ask April, um, is there anything that you wanted to call out you know, that, that you're seeing as being particularly effective that we need to lean into more? Um, I think, you know, the biggest issue that a lot um, of our clients are having, especially when we're trying to house them, it, house them are the rising prices, the uh, rental prices, like is DC is very expensive. Um, so that's one of the biggest challenges that we have um, in, in helping our clients is, you know, getting a, rent, a reasonable, let me put it that way, um, housing. And, and, and I think that we need to, it, it definitely needs to be a bigger discussion because I mean, it's, it's not getting any cheaper for anybody. And, and if we want to, you know, look like we're even making a bigger difference than we are, then it has to be discussed as, you know, how can we, you know, do better economically, you know, who is just, too expensive. It causes too many issues. It, you know, once somebody is housed, how can they afford their rent? Even if they have a, a, a voucher, the cost of living isn't going up, but the prices are continuing to rise. So, you know, as we've talked about here, you know, aging and homelessness is a housing issue. You know, more and more in the country, people are understanding how like deep of a crisis as there is about rising housing costs and affordable housing. So people can see themselves in the solution there. Like if we could help address, you know, housing costs, that's a key part of addressing aging and homelessness. I can see where I'm connected. We can easily see that like a lot of folks are much closer to being cost burdened than maybe they, they'd like to sort of express. So I think if we can understand what can sort of prevent homelessness, what support services would be really helpful for those that are, um, experiencing or on the brink of experiencing uh, poverty or homelessness, I think that that's something that uh, we could learn a little bit more, a lot more about. Thank you. That makes me think of our guaranteed income work, Brooke. But what else do you think we should be uh, looking at more closely? I got to say, at, at APT, I think we're beginning to make the connection within our technical assistance approaches to think more deeply about equity and how uh, pervasive trends of both first-time homelessness um, and chronic homelessness among our aging population exacerbate comorbidities, right? We talked earlier about speeding up decline and also thinking about mortality, how um, that speeds that up sort of quicker than normal, um, but also how we can apply an intersectional lens to further understand the disparities within that trend as well. To answer your question about solutions, I when you when you ask that, I'm like, oh, this is so big. I really appreciate April and Adam naming that uh, because it really requires us addressing multiple interlocking systems. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about, aside from paying folks a living wage, dismantling systemic racism across systems. Um, and we can we can name a few, um, but also just 
thinking about affordable housing and inequities in home ownership, we can also, I think, hone in on three things that I want to lift up. Uh, so the first one is one thing that we all talked about today, which is how can we like braid together funding um, across these overlapping systems and sectors to provide like a diverse portfolio of social and economic supports. Um, this is something that I really, really appreciate about Miriam's Kitchen. It, they talk a lot about this uh, extensively um, in their mission and how they serve folks. The other thing that I think will really help is to, con to coordinate with and expand our policy and funding decision-making tables uh, to those most impacted, right? This leads me to my third point um, about recognizing the power that we hold within our organizations and our roles, allowing that to not just be about power sharing, but power redistribution. This sort of connects to my last point, which is continue to build relationships with those most impacted and build relationships with those authentically and meaningfully partnering with those most impacted. I think viewed one way, our stories can be seen um, as a data point, if you will, um, that can have the power to inform what is happening um, with respect to aging homelessness. But I think more importantly, stories around experiences with homelessness will continue to humanize and speak life into the trends that communities um, and government officials are seeing nationally. So I think really elevating the voices of those most impacted, that's the contextual stitching, if you will, that's critical to, to lifting up more sustainable, tailored, um, human-centered programs and supports. Thank you. And, and you mentioned, uh, you know, listening to people and, and building that trust. That's something we talked about with um, April and Adam's colleague, Wesley. That's something, you know, Brooke, our colleagues in the, on the encampments team talk about um, maybe th that practical need. And April, maybe you can speak to this, but, or Adam uh, or Brooke, that practical need to just uh, earn that trust so you, so people know to, know to come to you for, uh, for support. I think that it's, it's so important to build the rapport with someone experiencing chronic homelessness and, you know, being a little transparent with them um, to be able to develop that rapport so that, you know, not everybody can relate to, you know, someone being homeless. Um, and, and so I think that one of the things that I see is that, you know, people, everybody can't relate. And so having somebody that you can relate to and, and be able to talk to and you can trust is, is a big part of what we do. Um, I think that is one of the most important things that we do is build that trust with our clients so that you know, they won't be scared, <laughs> scared, to, scared to trust the process and because a lot of people um, that are that are experiencing homelessness are, is seriously, they have lost their trust in the system. They do not trust the government. They do not trust some organizations out here because people have, you know, they, they, they show up but they're not showing up with care and compassion. They're not showing up with a listening ear. They're not showing up with, you know, the love and support someone needs. And that, that, that aspect is like one of the biggest things that we must have for people in any type of situation is 
compassion, um, empathy, love, care, and, and show them that you're there um, and that you understand. Um, so uh, uh, that's what that's what I see, because I, I see when people, you know, if they can't relate to you or they're not feeling you, they're definitely going to back up from from you. And it takes somebody else with who has the compassion and the patience and the care and everything that they need to be able to help them get through this process. Um, it, you 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 just got to have those skills. Well, you've got to invest in that, right? But that, it's that connection that helps connect people to services, right? Because otherwise. I think what our, what our colleagues at Apt have seen is that you know you can have a program uh, that might help somebody, but if you can't earn their trust to get them to engage with that program, then it then they they can't benefit from it. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and not everybody is like naturally equipped with it. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why I say if you come here, you if you do this work, you have to come with compassion. Um, cause if you come with just, well, this is just another job. Let me help this yes. person. That That's not going to work out too well. Thank you. I love, I love that you said that April, it resonates so deeply. I think one of the things that we're constantly thinking about at APT is the reach of our work, the impact that it's having. And I think you said it so eloquently, right? If folks are not trusting us, um, if we're unable to hear them, to really see their experiences, um, even though we're not all best equipped or well positioned to be able to connect with folks' stories, right, and their experiences. But I think as we are able to um, equip ourselves to do that as we are able to elevate the voices of those most impacted, we're also going to be able to reach them quicker. We're going to be able to reach them in ways that are much more tailored and impactful. And I think when we're able to foster a sense of community or trust with those we're working alongside, we're then able to really hear the fullness of their experiences. So I think ultimately, Trust really helps us to get more tailored. It helps us to lean in in a way um, that can extend our impact. And I think at APT, we're really focused on um, we're really focused on that North Star, really improving the lives and the well-being of the people that we serve. Thank you. So, on that note, let's pivot to, to what's my last question. Um, what else? We talked we talked about some things that might work, um, some things that do work. Um, you know, in the short term, what are some supports that could help move the needle, um, for you, Adam and April? It's a great question. So, I mean, on some level, we've talked really macro about how, you know, what's needed is big societal change or addressing housing, aging, you know, ways that healthcare systems are broken. And that's all really important. So we need people to be involved in like, advocacy and that sort of movement stuff in whatever way fits for you. And, you know, for people that live in the DC area, there's ways to get involved with Miriam's kitchen and advocacy directly here locally, but wherever you are, wherever you're connected to, that's an important step. There's also places like Miriam's kitchen and others where, you know, I wish it wasn't the case, but for right now, for the short term, we're helping fill a critical need to, you know, make sure that people experiencing homelessness have meals. People that are staying outside in the winter have the type of 
you know, coats and blankets that they need if they're staying outside or like we were talking about some of the other weather seasonal things, you know, in the, the extreme weather that we're seeing, you know, in the change in the world also has huge health impacts. So places like Miriam's Kitchen, making sure there's enough, you know, water and sunscreen and other hot weather items that you need. Um, and all of that, also the expertise that we build to try to help make sure that the sort of healthcare needs and complex um, like medical services are making it to the people who are homeless right now or seniors that are housed. And all of that takes like time and expertise and money. So places like Miriam's Kitchen need financial support. You know, we we couldn't do this without that. We couldn't do it without the, the people who volunteer. We couldn't do it without the people that get together and advocate. And that's all the things that make the amazing work that I think April has been the, the most eloquent in describing that it's what makes that possible. And um, so we're always looking for that help and always really thankful for everyone that, that is part of our community, making it happen. April, you want to add to that? I think Adam put it very well, but I would say on a personal note, on a personal level, not an organizational level, is that, you know, people just treat people like humans. Um, The next person, just because they don't look like you or, you know, they're not dressed like you or, you know, they don't have a home doesn't mean they're not human and it doesn't have feelings. Just be kind. And we need a lot of kindness in the world, um, especially when we're talking about aging, people that are experiencing homeless or even people who are re-entering society. Um, Just be kind because kindness can go a long way. Well, thank you all. I mean, like, as you've all said so eloquently, this is a a multifaceted challenge and, you know, but if it's a puzzle, I feel like at least you've all laid the pieces on the table so we can start putting them together, hopefully. Uh, Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for hosting the conversation and and really highlighting how important it is. I just want to thank Miriam's Kitchen and all the folks that uh, took all the work to put all of this together. I love that we're able to come to the table and have conversations about this and to come into community with each other. Um, So thank you for a great conversation.